0: young people habitually ask when I evangelize them, why does God say that sex before marriage is wrong? Listen, whenever God says you shall not, he does for two reasons. One, to protect you, and secondly, to provide for you.
1: Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Romans, and today Pastor Brogy looks at the danger of adding to God's formula for salvation, that of grace by faith in Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 25 of chapter 2, we see the Apostle Paul warning Jews who were trying to justify themselves by their lineage and by their right of circumcision. And Dr. Brogi explains that to do this is to practice a religion that will take you straight to hell.
0: If you're joining us for the first time we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this great letter and before we begin our text i want to ask you a question is the devil for or against religion well i want to tell you the devil is for religion it's one of his chief tools it's one of his chief instruments he uses religion to trap people and we see an illustration of that here in romans 2 some people who through religious practice had a false assurance that everything was right and fine with God. In fact, as a matter of truth, ever before Romans 2 is written in the opening chapters of Scripture, you see the devil using religion. As he slithers onto the pages of human history, he tempts Eve. He says, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. What was the devil telling Eve? He said, I wanna tell you how you can be like God. I wanna tell you how you can be religious. I'm gonna tell you how to be godly my way. That was not a temptation to fall down. That was a temptation to fall up. And so this morning, I wanna speak on the subject, the religion that will take you to hell. Romans two, we wanna begin precisely where we left off last week. Begin reading in verse 25, for indeed circumcision is a value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the circumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who though having the letter of the law in circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward of the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Now let's start by remembering the context of our passage because any text without a context is a pretext. And if you pretext the passage, you can easily miss its meaning or you can destroy the richness of what God is trying to say in the context. Paul knows, as we have seen, that before a person can come to Christ, he needs to see his need for salvation. That they need to come to the realization that their sin is a holy, offense to God. That God's anger burns towards sin. Forget all the nonsense of Joel Osteen telling you that you need Jesus to make you rich happy and to smile. A man who refuses to speak against sin. Lay that aside. You will never see your need to come to Jesus Christ until you see that your sin is so offensive that God's wrath burns against it. Such that the Bible says, he who believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe, the wrath of God abides upon him. And so having introduced the gospel, which is the theme of the epistle, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says it's the power of God for salvation. He proceeds to demonstrate man's need for the gospel. And again, nothing will keep people further away from Christ than to see their need. And so before he can give us the good news, We've seen he's giving us the bad news. And so having introduced the universal need, he now demonstrates the universality of sin. We've seen that Paul is like a skilled attorney. He takes and arraigns every group in the society. He brings an accusation against them. He marshals the evidence point by point. He proves their guilt and then he secures a conviction. We saw that he did it first with the idol-worshiping Gentile in Romans 1, 18, all the way through the chapter. And we saw that these were people who suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Now, the question people would ask is, what truth does a man who doesn't even have the Bible, what truth can he suppress? The revelation that God has given to all men wherever they live on the planet. So Paul can say God's divine attributes His eternal power in nature are clearly seen through the things that He has made. And so His argument is the reason they live like a pagan is not because they don't have truth, but because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness so that they are without excuse. And we saw in our study of Romans 1 that that's the reason some people never, ever, ever hear the gospel. Not because God doesn't want people to be saved, but because God practices precisely what He preaches. He tells us as believers that there's a time to withhold the gospel pearl when there's utter disdain for the things of God. And sometimes God withholds His gospel from the hearing of some people because if they won't respond to the most broad general revelation that God has given himself of Himself in creation and conscience and His care for humanity, then they won't respond to specific revelation. And so his point in Romans 1 is that these idolaters, they know better... They know the ordinance of God, that their sin is worthy of death, and so they are without excuse. We turned into Romans chapter 2, and we saw that Paul moved to a different group of people in the first half. He moved to the moralist, the good, what I've called the respectable sinner. Lives a decent moral life as a Gentile, not like the Gentiles described in the first half of, second half of chapter 1. And if you remember our discussion in the second Uh, the first group of people in the first uh, 16 verses, I did three messages on it. We saw that there were three principles that become the basis of their condemnation. I'll not take the time to belabor it, but Paul shows that they are guilty in that they have an ability to make a judgment about others. They are basically saying that they have knowledge of God and that knowledge therefore holds them accountable. When you come to 2.17, which we began last time, Paul moves from the moralists to the religionists, specifically to the Jew. About this time, the Jew would be saying, like the moralist said of the Gentile in chapter 1, oh yes, he deserves wrath, not me. Now the Jew says of the moralists and of the idol-worshiping Gentile, but I'm a Jew. I'm fine. I'm a member of God's covenant people. And so we saw now Paul moves from the description of O man to you who bear the name Jew in verse 17. Now certainly the Jew has been the hidden target in the first 16 verses, but now Paul directly addresses them. I mean, if anybody would express the epitome of confidence that they were right with God, it would be a Jewish man or woman. They felt secure because out of all the nations of the world, God had set his affection on them and chosen them to be the nation through which he would bless all the nations of the world. Now don't forget, Paul is a Pharisee by upbringing. He understood the Jewish mind. He was engaged in Jewish evangelism. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we saw he highlighted eight ways in which a faithful Jew thought he was eternally safe. And he did it by using eight different verbs. To give eight reasons why they thought they were right with God. If you want to go back and follow those. It's online. You can download it. But let me just read the text without explaining it. If you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a blind, a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of Truth, And we saw that Paul is using a literary method that was very common in the first century called diatribe. If you ever took a college philosophy course, you see Plato and Aristotle and a number of secular people using this methodology. What they basically do is they take the argument of the student or the question of the student or the objection of the critic and he paints a picture using their way of thinking to show how it's distorted. We saw Paul do that in the first half of Romans chapter 2. His arguments are by no means imaginary. They're real arguments. The arguments that he has given thus far are these uh, five reasons why He can, in essence, pull the rug out from underneath and show that they are guilty by using this series of rhetorical questions are are things that you actually find in the Gospels that Jesus uses. Again, Paul understood the way they thought. I'm sure there was a point in his own life where he used some of the same arguments. And so he asked five rhetorical questions that smashed their eight reasons for confidence. Again, let me just read it to bring you into the context. Verse 21, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? You boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? And so he goes for the jugular by asking these questions to show that they have a false assurance. Now, for some of the kids in grammar school, you may not know what a rhetorical question is. A rhetorical question, you'll get it, I think in sixth or seventh grade, is a figure of speech um, where you ask a, a question but you're not expecting the person to answer. So someone says to you, can't you do anything right? They're not expecting you to answer. And by the way, I hope you never say that to your children. And so Paul asks these five rhetorical questions to pull a rug out from underneath them to show that they have no basis whatsoever for assurance. We saw that they had not practiced what they had preached, that they had not lived lives of integrity, that they had not lived lives of moral purity, that they were not free from materialism. And in essence, they had not honored God in life. All right? And so the net effect, verse 24, is for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. You Jewish people, by the way you live, are mocking God, and the Gentiles, the pagans, are blaspheming God because what you say and what you do don't even begin to match. Now, if that were not bad enough, Paul now goes for the most precious thing that a Jew would cling to, namely circumcision now remember jews were very very religious people in that day and even some today especially in the orthodox realm you could say the same of and so you're in an airport and all of a sudden you see a group of jewish men dressed much differently than we with their beards with their hats with the locks on the side of their head and they take off their hats and they put a Prayer shawl over their heads, and they point towards Jerusalem, and they pray, and they rock, and you say, my, aren't they religious? And they are, and sometimes religious people are the hardest people in the world to reach. Certainly there is no one who is too bad that they cannot be saved, but there are many people who think they are too good that they don't need to be saved. And one of the coveted beliefs that a Jewish man had was the fact that he had been circumcised. And there are people who are no different today in the Christian realm, who have been baptized, who have had the sacrament of uh, what they call confirmation or last rites, or they're a member of a church or any number of religious rites that you can think of that they cling to as a basis for making them right with God. All right, now that brings us into the context. If you want to take a few notes this morning, the outline is very, very simple. First, I want us to think about external religion, cannot replace righteous living. Paul shows us how external religion cannot replace righteous living. Now, verse 25 introduces us to that ritual. Let me read it to you. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now, hold your finger here, would you, and turn to Genesis 17. Now, you need to know I was tempted, but I didn't do it. Almost had Rick put on the sign out there Have you been circumcised? And I thought that might be misunderstood. <laughs> but actually, to be a deacon in this church, you have to be circumcised. Actually, to sing in the choir as a woman. You have to be circumcised. You say, Pastor, you're all mixed up. No, I'm not. Because you're going to say that Paul understands circumcision in ways that we do not. Now, you'll never understand Paul's reasoning about outward circumcision or inward circumcision or other expressions that he used unless you understand circumcision itself. I have a whole sermon on this where I spent an hour on it, but let me just highlight a couple of key facts so that we have a basic theology on circumcision. Here in Genesis 17, this is the third time that God appears to Abraham promising to make him a great nation. He's 99 years old. He promises that through his barren wife, who's 90 years old, that he's going to give them a child. He's going to give them a baby. And so God says through Sarah, I'm going to make something real. And so I'm going to change your name from Abram to Abraham. Abraham is a word that means a father of a multitude of nations, a father of a multitude. And I'm sure there were some smiles on people's name, faces when Abraham went, God gave me a new name, Abraham. I'm going to be a father of a multitude of nations. And so he comes and he reaffirms this covenant that he had made earlier. Notice verse 11 or verse 10. God said, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, circumcision was not a new right. It was something that was practiced by many of the heathen nations, as it is practiced by many non-Jewish parents today. But God gave it a new meaning and a new importance. And so for the descendants of Abraham, circumcision was not an option. It was an obligation. Now, please understand, it was not some kind of sacrament like some of my Reformed and Covenant friends say. There are no outward rituals that convey grace. There was no kind of spiritual salvation that came through this act. Obviously, an eight-day-old baby did not understand what was going on. And when he got older, it had to later be explained to him. However, the obedience of the, of the parents was very important because if they didn't do what God said, they would be cut off from the covenant. So God says, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Verse 11, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations, a servant, who is born in the house, or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants? A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So God says, in essence, Abraham, I want you and everyone in your house. To be circumcised. Now remember, he's a full grown man, he's an adult. But after this, God prescribes every little boy on the eighth day. Now the Egyptians practiced circumcision, that's a well known established fact, and they, they did it for of, reasons of hygiene. And certainly God, the author of life, understanding the fall, understood the hygienic benefits. But it's far beyond that in the mind and teaching of Scripture. This is a symbol. This is a sign, a very important one of a covenant. It is to be a spiritual reminder. Now, nowhere do you see the fallenness and depravity of man more manifest than in the procreative acts. You say, what do you mean by that, pastor? Are you saying sex is evil? No, sex is not evil. Sex is a beautiful thing as God designed it. He thought it up. He installed the plumbing. And it is to be with one man and one woman until death separates them. And so we would be wise, this generation, to listen to what God has to say. Because young people habitually ask when I evangelize them, why does God say that sex before marriage is wrong? Listen, whenever God says you shall not, he does for two reasons. One, to protect you. And secondly, to provide for you. There are no sexually transmitted sins, uh, sexually transmitted diseases. When it's one man, one woman, period. None. When it's a closed system, there are no problems. God's trying to protect you. He's trying to protect you physically, spiritually, psychologically, mentally, in this covenant of marriage. And he's trying to provide the best for you because God knows when you do things his way, you experience his very best. You say, well, then what do you mean, pastor, when you say nowhere is the sinfulness of man more manifest in the procreative act? The answer is very simple. Sinful man produces sinful people. And nowhere in the anatomy of man is that more prevalent than in seen in the fact that the seed produces a sinner. Now may I remind you that the Lord Jesus, as Paul is going to uh, teach us, was a sinless person in Romans 5. Because he had no human father. God the Holy Spirit provided the seed for the Virgin Mary. And so when a man procreates and brings a, a baby into this world through his, through his wife it's not the sinful deeds that are passed on from the man. It's the very sinful nature. And Paul's going to explore that and expound that in great detail when we come to the fifth chapter. You say, then what's the connection to circumcision? Well, every time a a man would either take it upon himself or on his child, he was reminded in the most sensitive part of his body how fallen he was. That was one of the ideas behind circumcision. You might want to go back and listen to the message I did on Genesis 17. And so every time, every time a man would circumcise his little boy in the eighth day, he was affirming that basic to man is a fallen, sinful nature in need of cleansing. And whenever people forgot of their need for circumcision, God reminded them. Listen to these words from Joshua 5. Uh, The people of Israel had crossed over the Jordan River where God stopped the waters and they went through on dry land as they did through the Red Sea. And they come into the promised land. And if you remember, um, when that happened, uh, there was a new generation of people. Everyone 20 years of age and up had died in the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness with the exception of two people. Two people who believed what God said, Joshua and Caleb. And so a whole new generation of people had sprung up. At this point, we, though we don't know an exact number, we know two million left Egypt, 600,000 men excluding women and children. There's no doubt several million people. And God says this, these who had grown up in the wilderness, he says in Joshua 5, make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel for a second time. Through the wilderness wanderings, many of the people had become indifferent. And you see their spiritual indifference in the fact that this new generation had not been circumcised. So Joshua, the Bible says, made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haarlof. Literally, the Hebrew means the hill of the foreskins. Probably a million to two million men were circumcised. There's literally a hill of four And so God basically says, listen, all those who came out of Egypt were circumcised. But this new generation needs to be circumcised. And it is this physical surgery that Paul is going to spring off of here in Romans chapter 2 as a reminder of the need for spiritual surgery. God had established right at the beginning of the need for cleansing, the need for the shedding of blood. If you remember Adam and Eve, through the work of their own hands, through what we call fig leaf religion, they tried to cover their shame and guilt by what they did. And so the very first death in all the universe takes place where God kills an innocent animal and provides for them coats of skin. You come into Genesis 4 and you see Cain and Abel coming to worship God. And God is pleased with Abel's offering because he brings the firstlings of his flock. He brings an offering of blood. While Cain brings something without the shedding of blood. Abel brought what God taught. Cain brought what he thought. One came on the basis of revelation. What Hebrews 11 calls on the basis of faith. The other came on the basis of his own thinking. Now, faith is always based on the Word of God. And don't buy into some of the 19th century liberalism that now has become popular in evangelical circles that said the difference between the sacrifice was either the origin of the sacrifice or the quality of the sacrifice. God had not said anything about the origin or the quality, but he had revealed the need for the shedding of blood. You say, how did these boys know? Either God spoke to them directly, as he spoke directly to Adam and Eve, or they learned it through their parents. I mean, how else would mom have this beautiful fur coat and and Adam this fur suit? And clearly, in the New Testament, the Bible teaches they understood him the need for the shedding of blood. Because the New Testament reveals something that we don't learn in the Old Testament about Abel Jesus indicts the religious leaders of his day with the blood of all the prophets from Abel. To Zechariah. And so we learn in the New Testament that Abel was a prophet. You say, of what significance is that? Peter says in Acts 10 and verse 43 that all the prophets preached that through his name, through Messiah's name, everyone who believes will find forgiveness of sin. And so these men knew that God had prescribed a way that the life is in the blood. And so without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And God, when he initially established this covenant with Abraham, affirmed that. God is spirit. God doesn't have a, a, a body, the father. He doesn't have a flesh and blood body. So if you remember in our study of Genesis 15, when God cut the covenant with Abram, He said, listen, I want you to get a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram. I want you to get a pigeon and a turtle dove. I want you to cut the three animals and place a bird on either side. And then he puts Abraham into a deep sleep. And back in those days when you made a very serious deal, you cut an animal in two and then you walk between it. In essence, you said, may it be done to me as this animal if I do not keep my word. Now Abraham is in a deep sleep because this is a unilateral covenant and this is what some of my reformed friends don't understand. And so they say the church is the new Israel, that God's done with national Israel. But the Bible is very clear that God is not done with the people of Israel, that he used them the first time to bring about the first coming and he will use them the second time to bring about the second coming.
1: To listen again to today's study from Romans chapter 2 entitled, Religion That Will Take You to Hell, visit our website at searchthescriptures.org and download program ROM10. You can also listen to it from our Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, which can be found at the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. The Bible tells us that man makes his plans, but God directs the steps. And so it is with our trip to Israel. Earlier this year, we had scheduled an 11-day visit to the Holy Land, but a resurgence of the COVID pandemic has caused the Israelis to put a halt to tourist traffic. Consequently, we've rescheduled our trip for May of 2022. Now, this is good news if you'd wanted to go, but for whatever reason hadn't signed up. The deadline for this amazing trip of a lifetime is now February 11th, and you won't want to miss out as Pastor Brogy leads a group of Search the Scripture's listeners through many of the locations outlined in the Bible. Find out more by visiting stsisraeltour.com. This trip is paid for exclusively by those participating in the excursion. Tomorrow we continue our look at religion that will take you to hell. Join us then as we search the scriptures.